Father, we know that you have an established plan and you wield individuals and your power however you see fit to communicate your word and to carry out that plan. We understand that we are a part of that, bringing the gospel, bringing comfort, and bringing wisdom and encouragement. Anything that you would have us do, we want to be willing to go forth and proclaim whatever it is your will demands. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be just basking in your word, that we'd be able to receive it, that we'd not have our preconceived doctrines and notions of what right and wrong is, but we would rely on you. And when it comes to the history of the church, Lord, help us to be in tune with what you have done and what you want to do in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, God has provided for us an account of the church in the first century, how it went out, the gospel went out from Jerusalem to other places in the world. And the migration begins with the disciples, specifically Peter, the apostle Peter, going to the house of Cornelius. Now, in chapter 10, what happened there was Peter went up to a roof to pray, and he was interested in having a meal, but he, it wasn't prepared right away, so that's where he went. He went up to pray, and as he was praying, he fell into this trance. And when he fell into this trance, the sheet comes down from heaven. He sees this vision. The sheet comes down, and all kinds of unclean things are there for him to eat. And the Lord says, take up and eat, kill, take up and eat. And he goes, far be it for me, Lord, to do that. I've never taken anything that is unclean. I will not do it. Well, three times he has this vision going up and down. And unbeknownst to him, Cornelius, who was a centurion, he was not a Jew. He was a God-fearer, one who worshiped God that was not a Jew. And he had this uh, vision come to him that he needed to send for Peter, who was in Joppa. And he sent two individuals, two servants with another soldier, and they went to Peter's house. And right as he had this vision, these individuals show up at the house. And they say, we have a message from Cornelius. We're supposed to grab you, and you're supposed to go see him at Caesarea. And because Peter had this vision, he understood that whatever God has called clean, we are not to call unclean. And that has a double meaning in there. The food, he was able to eat the food after that that the Gentiles were eat, the, the food that is not kosher. And also that he has the ability to meet and converse and share a meal with somebody who is a Gentile because the Jews were not into that. They would not sit down and have a meal with a Gentile. That was anathema. That was a curse. That was something that was sinful t- for them. And so he went and gave them the gospel. And as he gave them the gospel, his family and Cornelius, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the Spirit. And then Peter said, well, you've seen this take place. Can anybody stop these people from being baptized? And so he took them out immediately and he baptized them. Now, Peter took with him six servants, six people to witness what was going on. Because he knew he was going to go to the house of a Gentile, but going to the house of a Gentile, that's going to present a problem, and people might judge him for that. And, of course, that is what took place, as we'll get into chapter 11. But 
because of the persecution of the disciples of Jesus, we begin to see there's a scattering that takes place also. And we'll get to that probably next week. But that scattering takes place and moves people around the map. People end up going to Cyrene, which is on the northern tip of Africa. People went to Antioch and also to the island of Cyprus. And so they're spreading out once this persecution takes place. And remember, the Apostle Paul was chief of the persecutors and he stepped out and God called him and now he's the great evangelist for Jesus Christ himself but the persecution is still taking place but Peter shows back up in Jerusalem and he has to give an account to the other Christian Jews those who are Jews that became believer in Jesus Christ he has to give an account to them because they're upset that he went to the house of a Gentile and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 11 verse 1 The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. (laughs) Yeah. And he has to start explaining, probably a little sheepishly, because he knows that the Jews aren't going to like this. But the problem with this is they're more concerned with what Peter did than what God was doing. It became focused on the people. And it's like, why are you associating with them? Why are you doing stuff with them? Why are you hanging out with those people? When In the past, we went to Ireland. And when we went to Ireland and we were doing some outreaches, we called them crusades uh, in Ireland. And we would meet with the different churches around there. And we'd do some preparatory work. And with the churches, they, they had a hard time like, who are these Americans coming in? Oh, you're wrecking my head type of thing. And they wouldn't want to uh, go with Maranatha and uh, Patty and I went and uh, a couple other churches were there. They didn't really want to associate. And somebody had to set them down, one of the pastors over in Ireland, and told this group of pastors that were there getting together, different denominations, and said, what is wrong here? You have these Americans who are coming over. They're setting up a tent, doing evangelistic outreach. They're paying for everything, and they're going to leave the people with you, and then they leave. Now, what is wrong with that? And finally, they capitulated. They said, okay, we'll allow you to do this and come on in. It's like there's battling going on between the people overlooking what God might want to do and what he actually did. And so this isn't something that is new. They criticized Peter and they separated or withdrew from him. They were contending with him. They doubted who he was and they were offended that Peter would even associate with those who were non-Jews. Now, if you can remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when the Samaritan village did not receive Jesus because he was headed towards Jerusalem instead of staying in Samaria, what did James and John want to do? Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven on them? And it's like, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus said. Just knock it off. Let's go. And they went to another village. You know, if God is working, we are not to judge or discriminate how he works. Now, we're to follow scripture. We're not to go off of proper doctrine and the purposes that he has set up. But we often will judge the people and what they were doing or what they are doing and not look at what God may be working in the lives of the people. Now, if God is not working or accepted, do not judge or hold and condemn those who reject him either. 
If you go into a particular place and you're being a witness or a family member, do you start judging them? Well, they're just a bunch of sinners and I'm going to shake off the dust of my feet and walk out of this place. I'm going to have nothing to do with them whatsoever. They're going to die and they're going to go to hell. Now that may be true. But God doesn't want us to look at them as something that is cursed. God looks at them as they need to be saved. I love them just as much as I love you. So please don't look in a disingenuous or a downtrodden way on those people. You want to make sure you're praying for them even if they reject the gospel. Because if you understand what God has done and how this world, everyone's under a curse. And he just wants to save everybody but not everybody is willing. Our hearts should break for those people. And that should have been the case of those Jews who were saved, who were Christians. So Peter goes on to explain his vision here. In verse 4, Peter began to explain everything to them precisely as it had happened. It was in the city of Joppa, or he was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds of the air. Then I heard a voice calling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So it was wise that Peter brought these six individuals as a witness. Presumably they're all Jews who were saved. And if he had not, he surely would have been more harshly judged by his fellow Jewish believers for his converting with the Gentiles. And so it's good when you do ministry to have somebody with you. They can be praying for you. They can be a witness to what goes on. Uh, Another time we were in um, uh, Ireland and we had this English language class come out. And as we were witnessing, somebody would usually do the talking and another person would be praying or they would have something to interject that they felt the Lord wanted them to say. And you're supposed to go two by two. I told the uh, youth group when they go out and hand out the flyers, I said, you have to have a minimum of two people wherever you go. And that's how Jesus sent out his disciples as well. And so they can be witnesses of whatever takes place. Now, verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them. And as he had come on us at the beginning, then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objection and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So this was a fantastic thing. The witnesses were there to back up Peter. They all recognized that the Holy Spirit was going to the Gentiles. This was a first 
This was a momentous occasion because they all thought, well, it's just the Jews. We're the chosen people. The Messiah is going to set up his reign and Rome is going to be put down and the Jews are going to reign over the whole earth with Jesus Christ. And they thought that's how it was going to be. Now, our tendency, all of us, is to engage in conflict whenever something is done or proposed. Have you ever been on a committee of some kind? You've been on a committee and some people say, well, no, we ought to do it this way. No, we ought to do it that way. And usually there's an argument that ensues. Now, these Jewish believers that were judging Peter, that we have just read about that, there were other instances where people wanted to fight instead of just follow the leading of the Lord. Now, I already told you about James and John in Luke chapter 9. But remember Peter saying to Jesus, you are not going to wash my feet. And he's the Lord of all the earth. And he goes, well, if I'm not going to wash your feet, you have no part with me. Well, give me a whole bath then. I'll take a whole bath is what he said. He was willing to argue with Jesus. Now, if you understood who Jesus was, God in the flesh, he knew Jesus so well, he thought he could argue with him. If Jesus says something, if he says it in his word, we are simply supposed to be compliant. Now, if you disagree with something that is in his word, it's not that God has misspoken about something that's in scripture. It's that our understanding is lacking. And I usually go through a study and misinterpretation of the scriptures. And and when I go through that study, people just start to go, what do you mean? Like, for instance, there's some controversies and First Corinthians chapter 11, should women have their head covered? Should men not wear hats? Don't you know the very nature of thing tells you that if men have long hair, it is a sin? You know, these are controversial things or wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. There's so many things in the scripture that we can start to argue about, but it's usually because our understanding is lacking. It's not because God hasn't spoken clearly and we need to seek out that understanding. Now, Paul also, remember Paul got in an argument with Barnabas and he got in an argument with Barnabas over John Mark, a young man And that John Mark, he deserted Paul when he was on the mission field, him and Barnabas. He just said, no, that's it. I'm going home. And so Paul was mad. He was mad at John Mark. Like, you ain't going with us nowhere. That's highly technical phrase, but that's that's what he said to him. You're not coming with us. And Barnabas said, no, no, we're going to take him with us. And Paul and Barnabas started to butt heads about that, said, it's not happening, and I'm not going with you, is what Paul said or Barnabas said. Barnabas said, fine, I'm taking John Mark with me, and you can go ahead and take Silas. Now that argument, arguing back and forth, and it was a heated discussion. It wasn't something like, well, rather I think I ought to separate from you, good brother, and go in this direction. I don't think it was like that at all. Do you think Paul was passionate? Remember before the Sanhedrin? He said, you whitewashed sepulcher. Yeah, he was just like in their face and that's how he argued and presented the gospel and went against those who disagreed with the gospel. So that tension was going on. We see that there is this tendency even for the apostles to argue. And that was in Acts chapter 15. And then uh, Peter thinking that he needed to have the, <coughs> excuse me, the Gentiles live like the Jews and, and follow the teaching and the lifestyles of the Jews in Galatians chapter 5. And Paul came around and rebuked him for it. You, you know, so it, 
Peter, he didn't want to have conflict, so he just capitulated to the other Jews who were believers who thought you had to be circumcised, you had to follow certain days and certain dietary laws. And Paul's saying, no. Now, it's not that you can't practice those things, but they are not required. Like if you went to Israel and somebody invited you to their house to a Jewish Seder, you could go to a Jewish Seder, but you know that it has been fulfilled or practicing one of the festivals or the feasts. You can do that as well. That's wonderful. But you're looking back to when Jesus came and fulfilled those things. And of course, the Jews are still looking for their Messiah and they will receive the Antichrist who comes in the book of Revelation chapter 13. Jesus even said, you, him, you will receive him even though they didn't receive Jesus as the Messiah. And so that's coming in the future. And then how about the apostles? When they were still disciples, they were arguing who was the greatest? Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. You remember he used to say that? They were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, we only have a couple of arguments, a couple of failings of these apostles and disciples in the New Testament. How many more do you think there were? They were taking place on a regular basis. And it's okay that we have conflict because we know that Scripture tells us that as iron sharpens iron, so does man sharpen another man, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. And so there has to be conflict to get us to the place we need to be. You know, when it comes to hashing out doctrine, <clears throat> there are established doctrines that I believe are held in the church, like the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, his second coming. Those are all established orthodox teachings in the Christian church. But there are things that are not so established, like the gifts and eschatology, and we can hone our skills and hone our understanding of doctrine when we talk about those things. But in order to talk about them, you have to fellowship. You have to get together. And you have to discuss, well, is this right or is this wrong? And what is our practice supposed to be in the church? So conflict is always on the horizon for the church, inside the church. It's going to happen. It always comes from the outside. We know that. But what about inside the church? Do you think there's conflict coming for us in the church? I'm, I'm not talking about Calvary Chapel Lakeside. I'm talking about the universal church. Do you think that there is going to be a lot of conflict arising. It is on the horizon. I, I see rumblings of this already. If you haven't heard about it, the new apostolic reformation, I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but you ought to look it up. You ought to see what it is. Uh, when I was in seminary, we were given books to read. Of course, we had to read a book every month and every week, whatever it was, and we had to write a paper about it. And one of the individuals we were given a book to read who authored it was C. Peter Wagner. C. Peter Wagner was one of the individuals who was in charge of setting up this new apostolic rep reformation. And what they believe you can do, and part of this comes out of Bethel Church, if you know what Bethel is. <clears throat> and I've told you before, those who have been here a while, about grave sucking uh, that they promote that you can go to a grave of somebody who is a wonderful spirit-filled individual and you can either lay on the grave or hang around the grave and you will suck up some of the spirit that the person had. That's demonic. This is a doctrine of demons to do that. That's inside the church. And this is rolling through the church, these types of doctrines. Another one that is being promoted and taught is astral projection. 
like going into a trance and discovering something that Jesus has for you, take a, a journey and go to heaven and see what it's all like. And they're doing this with the youth. And again, these are doctrines of demons. And this is on the rise. This began a couple of decades ago, and it is just steamrolling now. If you're not familiar with it, you need to become familiar with it so you can oppose it when somebody says this is a great thing because it is not a great thing. If you find somebody who is involved in this, and by the way, one of the other things that they're doing is you too can become an apostle if you simply pay the fee annually and we will ordain you as an apostle and you will be just as great as the apostles in the New Testament. That's another thing they're promoting. Last time I checked, signs, wonders, and miracles follow an apostle. And the apostles had to be a witness of the ministry of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Those were the qualifications. But they're saying, oh, no, that was just kind of allegorical. We have new apostles today. Even over in Israel, they are, quote, unquote, crowning apostles over there. And as they speak, it would be like the Pope, ex-cathedra. When they speak, it's like gospel. It's like scripture. So you need to be aware of the new apostolic reformation. There is another movement inside the church. I'm just going to simply call it the progressive church. The progressive church is accepting things like abortion and homosexuality in the church. Now, those are sins just like any other sin. I don't want to say that they are worse than that sin. The sin that is talked about being worse is adultery, just plain adultery. And so with these things, they're coming up in the church. Now, Scripture specifically says that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there are churches that are promoting this. The latest, I don't know if you know who Andy Stanley is. He came out, and you can read this. This was just last week and the week before. He's coming out saying that they love Jesus just as much as anyone else, and they can serve inside the church. And God says, no. You're not supposed to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a standard of holiness that we're supposed to maintain. And not that people don't sin. We are all sinners. Can we admit that? Can I hear an amen? Okay, okay. We're, we're all sinners. But that's not the point. The point is the person who says, I can sin and it's okay to be like that. For that person, God says, no, you're not going to heaven you are self-deceived in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And those who teach that are false teachers. And they're going to take people away from the kingdom of God. So that is coming into conflict with those inside the church. And we need to make sure we understand what doctrine is and how it stands up against the world. And the world is infiltrating the church. And there's going to be conflict and those who say, no, I'm going to stick with what has been the historical Christian faith, that there is a thing called sin, and we are all sinners, we're all under a curse. But the person who approves of the sin is a false teacher, and we are to oppose them. And that's going to bring conflict. It always does. You're going to have conflict with that if you talk with somebody in your own families. Because what is the mode of operation today? What well, just love is love. No, that's a catchphrase that is used. Love is not love. We have to be able to say, Jesus is love. Scripture says, God is love. And we look to him, and he sets the standard for what love is. So this conflict is going to be there. 
And we have to be ready for it. And we shouldn't be contentious in opposing this. We simply need to calmly state, this is wrong. And we need to change our attitude on it. You know, for all of us, if anybody ever gives a message about holiness, don't we shrink on the inside? Don't we say, yeah, I'm, I'm not very holy. Yeah, I don't pray enough. I don't go to church enough. I don't read enough. I don't do good things enough. I don't do outreach enough. It, it, we're all guilty. And that's where God's grace comes in. He says, I know, and you're broken, and you're sinful, and harmful to yourself and everybody else around you. But that's okay. You're saved now. And God delights to bless those who just recognize that he wants to save us. And that's the good news of the gospel. The bad news has to be taught, but the good news, and that's what we're under, those of us who are believed, we are blessed. We are a blessed people. And we want others to be blessed as well, to turn from their sinful ways, just like we have, and said, Lord, I'm, I know I'm still going to sin, but your grace is sufficient for me. And that's the message we need to communicate to others. So, Cornelius and his household, they received the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, and were baptized. And back in Acts chapter 10, verse 46, it talks about this. It says, then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. And so Peter fulfilled the great commission here. Go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. So these are things that were being established that were supposed to take place on a regular basis inside the church. You pray for people or you give them the gospel. That's what Peter was doing. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That was evidenced by Peter and the six people who were there. Then Peter said, let's get them baptized because that is an ordinance in the church. And maybe you've heard that word before, ordinances. Now, there are certain things that as mature believers, we are supposed to understand inside the church. If you claim to be a mature Christian, and what I mean by mature is you have a working knowledge of the scriptures. You are not ignorant of the ways of God. If you are a mature Christian, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 talks about this. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again. And there are six things here. The foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. In other words, we're supposed to repent. Everybody who's a believer understands, that is mature, understands what repentance is. We have a change of mind and we have a change of direction as far as our works are concerned. Also, faith in God, having faith in God that he will save us. That is an elementary foundation of the Christian church. Instruction about baptisms. How many baptisms are there? Well, there were nine last time I checked, and we'll get into that a little bit. The laying on of hands, and this isn't Guido talking. I lay my hands on you, buddy. It's not like it's laying on of hands, like to ordain for ministry or bring a blessing or pray for somebody for healing. Then there's the resurrection of the dead. There is going to be a resurrection. Every one of us, if we should die before the rapture takes place, we will be resurrected. Lord willing, all of us are believers in here and we'll all be resurrected with our new bodies and we'll live forever in those bodies. And then there's the eternal judgment. Both Matthew 25, 46 and Daniel 12, 2 say life and punishment are eternal. 
Both of them have the same duration of time as we look at time. And it says in verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. So those are the basic foundations of the Christian faith. Now, these foundations have been categorized and added to in the Christian church. For a thousand years, the Catholic church came up with this idea of sacraments. And there are sacraments in the Catholic Church. And what a sacrament means, the Greek word is mysterion. It's kind of a mystery, but it's a rite or it's a ritual that is performed in and by the church to convey God's grace. So if you do these things, they taught that you get God's grace. One of these things is baptism. Baptism, confirmation, communion, penance and reconciliation, anointing of the sick, Holy matrimony and holy orders. Now, if you want to look at that more, you can. It's just the sacraments of the Catholic Church. As a protestant, as a Protestant, I protest against that because I don't think we can earn God's grace. God's grace is a free gift. Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. There are other scriptures that deal with God's grace. God's grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. The sacraments teach that if you do them, you get more of God's grace coming towards you. And I think that that is an error in doctrine. But it's because of the tradition that has gone on for so many hundreds of years that this is installed in the Catholic Church. Now, what about the Protestant churches? The word sacrament usually would not be used the word that would be used would be an ordinance for the christian church the the protestant church the ordinances are baptism and communion those two things god said i want these things installed in the church and of course there are conditions for these things being installed there are three factors that determine what an ordinance is an ordinance would be they were instituted by christ They were taught by the apostles, and they were practiced in the early church. Those three things would constitute an ordinance. And so this idea of baptism, Jesus was baptized, the apostles practiced it, they went out and baptized, and we know that it was practiced in the church as well. We see that in the book of Acts. And communion, as often as we receive of it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are to remember, it's a memorial, what Christ has done for us. So in this church, we practice baptism and we practice communion. Communion we'll receive today. Uh, Baptism, we're not going to do that today, but I believe that every believer is supposed to be baptized. Now, for us, we want to make sure that these practices and these doctrines are solid in our mind. Like I said, a mature believer will understand what these things are. Uh, When it comes to baptisms... You know, I, I am instructed from Paul speaking to Timothy. He talks about marriage and food and godless myths and godliness, all these things he is supposed to teach. And so Paul gives instruction to Timothy what he is supposed to teach. Then he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So... I have been given instruction as a pastor what scripture tells me a pastor is supposed to do as Paul talking to Timothy. One of those things is to give you proper doctrine. 
So the doctrine of communion, receiving communion, that is definitely biblical. The doctrine of baptism, I'm supposed to instruct on baptism and what it is and who's supposed to receive it. So there are nine baptisms that I can count in Scripture. There's baptism in water or the baptism of repentance. There is baptism of the dead, baptism of suffering, baptism that is figurative, uh, baptism with fire, baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism of Jesus, and baptism of the believer. So those things are mentioned in Scripture. Now, do we participate in all of those? Well, you may not be suffering very much, but Jesus definitely had a baptism of suffering. Depends on where you are in the world, if you're a believer, if you're going to suffer or not suffer. To some degree, we have disagreements and we suffer and we have conflict, but not all of us are going to lose our lives because we follow Jesus Christ. And and so these baptisms are necessary to understand. Now, what does the word baptism mean or to be baptized? The Greek word is baptizo. It refers to pickling cucumbers. And you put them in a brine solution with dill, and it comes out, and it changes the very nature of the pickle. Now, when you get baptized in water, does it change you into a pickle? Does it change you into something else? No, it doesn't change you into anything. It is something that is outward that everybody sees you're doing, and it's kind of like the seal of the covenant. In the Old Testament, the seal was circumcision. In the New Testament, there is baptism. All those people who claim to be believers, they are the ones who are supposed to get baptized. And how do you get baptized? What's the modus operandi, so to speak? If I took a bunch of water, if I, if I grabbed a bottle of water, which I have under here, and I just started slinging it out there, and I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, <clears throat> is that going to be acceptable? Well, I, I, I don't think so, but if somebody wants to do that, if somebody is infirmed, and they get a little sprinkling on them, and they're confessing Jesus Christ in front of people, okay, I'm not going to argue with that. I've told you before about the one baptism we did where a woman, she was dying over here in El Cajon. And she wanted to be baptized before she died. And we went to the edge of a pool and we poured water over her head. And she could not get into the water because she had wounds uh, from surgery. I think that's okay too. She did it publicly. She confessed Christ. She wanted everybody to know that she was following Jesus. And, and that's okay. The preferred way? Dunk them, baby. I mean, get them under there, completely wet, saturated, coming up out of the water, because that is figurative of being buried with Jesus Christ, like going into the grave and then coming back up, a new creature in Christ. Behold, all things become new. That's why he wants us to do this. We, we are remembering his death, burial, and resurrection when we get baptized in water. Now, there are some theological views about baptism, like, for instance, baptismal regeneration, that you're saved when you're baptized. I once had a kind disagreement with some people in the Church of Christ who said, you have to be baptized in our church by our formula, and if you're not, you're probably not saved. Well, you're definitely not saved, and if you don't do it that way, you're lost. 
Well, I kind of disagreed with that. And they had this order that when you get baptized in water, then you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I said, funny, you know, Acts chapter 10 and 11 say that they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then they got baptized. And the guy says, how do you know this? Just read the Bible. It's, it's in the Bible. You can see it right there. And so that was an issue at that particular time. But you do not get regenerated or born again because you dip in water. That doesn't happen first peter chapter 3 verse 21 it says it's not the removal of dirt from the body but a pledge of a good conscience towards god that's what saves you it's the pledge of a good conscience towards god it's not you dunking in the water it's also like i said a sign and seal of the covenant it just simply means that hey, you have been inducted into christendom so to speak and, and it's just the outward sign it's already taken place on the inside if you have accepted Christ. And it's a symbol of our salvation. Now, who should get baptized? Disciples of Jesus Christ. That's it. If you follow Jesus, get baptized. Get dunked. Get wet. Uh, why should I get baptized? Why should anyone get baptized? Well, it's a command. Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that was an imperative. It was a command that was given uh, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 I've already given you that and also it's a testimony of true faith and repentance Galatians three twenty-six and 27 you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ now there's a figurative baptism into Jesus that's I believe involved in that as well but it's the idea that I'm going to stand up publicly I'm going to get in the water and I'm going to be prayed over and I'm going to be baptized for the sake of Jesus. When should you get baptized? Even in some Calvary chapels, I know that they were having people go through classes. <coughs> Excuse me. And so you will understand what baptism is. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? Remember that? And he, he was reading Isaiah. I don't know. I can't quite understand this. And he received Jesus Christ. And right then they went down to the river and he got baptized in the book of Acts. It's like, why should you wait? You accept Jesus Christ. If there's a puddle big enough, just go into the puddle, get baptized. It's okay. Or a bathtub. And, you know, we've been to swimming pools. We've been to the bay. We've been to the ocean. You just baptize anywhere that you can, and it should be public. It shouldn't be something that is done behind closed doors, so to speak. Well, what about children and infants? Should they be baptized? Well, I think when a child is old enough to understand what salvation is, get them baptized. And on top of that, I don't think we should make it difficult for children to be baptized. So what would you do today, Tommy? I went to church. What would you do at church? I accepted Jesus as my Savior and I get to go to heaven. Oh, so are you going to get baptized? Yeah, I wanted to today, but they said I couldn't. Could you imagine? It's like, okay, little Tommy, let's get you dunked. Let's get you in the water and bring you back up. Let's not make it difficult for them. When they get older, if they say, you know, I, I maybe understood it. I didn't quite maybe not understand it i i don't know but i want to get baptized again okay we can double do you is is it necessary no it's not necessary to dunk twice one two three. you know up and down you don't wash off that sin no it doesn't work like that but if somebody 
wants to get baptized a second time or if it's a child, you know, that didn't think they did it quite right, okay, I think our God is a God of grace. Let's not make it hard or difficult. Does water baptism secure my salvation? No, it doesn't. You're not saved because you get baptized and you're not kept because you get baptized. There's no work you can do to maintain your salvation. You can't pray enough. You can't read enough. You can't give enough. You can't do works enough. None of that stuff keeps you in Christ. It is Christ that keeps us in him. And I'm going to get this point again. What if I was baptized before I was saved as an infant? Should I be baptized again? I would say, yeah, you were really baptized the way the Bible spells it out. Get baptized. And then why don't people get baptized? Well, there's several reasons. Ignorant. They, they just haven't had the proper teaching. They, they just don't know. Not ignorant in a bad sense, like, oh, you're stupid. No, you just haven't been taught. Okay, so you've been taught, then get baptized. What's another reason? Procrastination. Oh, I will, but I just did my hair. And let's get you baptized. You're going to have perfect hair in heaven. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. You're going to be gleaming everywhere. Down here, not so much. We get old, we get wrinkly, and we die. But just get baptized. Don't procrastinate. Another one is defiance. I don't want to. Why not? Because you want me to. I don't want to. I, I don't want to do it now. I'll do it some other time. Okay, Another reason people don't get baptized, they're unregenerate, they're unsaved. That's why they don't get baptized. I'm not following Christ, why are you trying to baptize me? I mean, that goes without saying, right? And then there's indifferent. Well, I don't know. Aunt Julie, she got baptized and, you know, it was all right. Okay, you get it. Then there's open sin. What if somebody comes and says, I want to be baptized with my beer is that alright no it's not okay you know there was one time we did a thing in the park and I said okay bring your drinks your sodas and whatever we'll put them in the trash can bring a few extra for everybody else some guy brings a six pack of beer and he throws it in the trash can it's not good and then some of the other guys in the church at that time they were saying well what about O'Doul's can we get just know already you know you're doing a church function you don't want to do that you you don't want to bring that in so there could be open sin like that or what if they're going partying all weekend and then sunday they come to church with a hangover and they've been doing drugs and it's like yeah it's cool (laughs) next weekend i'm getting baptized and after that we're going for a big party No, that's not why somebody should get baptized. It's not fire insurance either, just because there's water involved. You get that? You're supposed to get baptized because you say, you know, I'm going to forsake the ways of the world. If you go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it talks about the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, debauchery, lasciviousness, all, all of those things, anger, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. If you're involved in stuff like that and you're unrepentant in it, not that you might not fall again, whatever the case might be, but God says, no, take care of that issue first 
and then come and get baptized. Not that you won't sin again, because you're going to sin. We're sinners saved by grace. And God says, that's okay. You just keep striving, heading towards the mark. I press towards the mark for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, for getting what is behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. That's what we're supposed to do. And press means it's uphill and you're pressing towards the mark. That means it's going to be a struggle. So how to apply all of this? Well, we're going to receive communion here. If you want to get baptized, just drop a note. Come and talk to me later. We'll get you baptized. We'll set something up. We'll take you to a pool or to the ocean. Winter is good for the beach. We can go down there and dunk you in. But we'll work out something and, and get you baptized. So that would be the number one thing. Number two, be aware that there's going to be conflict among Christians and conflict is coming our way. And we have to be aware of that conflict and we have to be prepared to pull out your sword and use it, which means you need to know the scriptures. You need to be in fellowship. You need to study to show yourself approved and be careful to know and understand proper doctrine and practice. And with all of that, God will have his grace upon us because we're striving as much as it is humanly possible to be pleasing to God as far as our obedience. Now, we're not any more pleasing to God when we get saved because he just loves us. He wants us. And that's okay. But as far as our walks are concerned, he wants us to be sanctified and set apart. Now, at this point, Kim's going to come forward and she is going to begin uh, playing a song. And when she starts playing that song, if you need to confess anything to Jesus Christ, and by the way, as a side note, if you need prayer afterwards, you can see me or you can see Pat that was up here, or you can see Rudy uh, or Vince in the back. We'd be happy to pray for you for whatever you need, whether it be a healing or something going on in your life. You can also drop a prayer request in the agape box at the back. But Kim is going to begin to play. And as she plays, just take a moment. Turn to Christ and say, you know, Jesus, I, I've so blown it. And, you know, you have a particular sin and you say, yeah, I want to turn from this. I want to be humble before you. I want to fear you. We know humility is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. And just confess, whatever. And then come forward. And we're going to have this laid out. Dennis will come forward and he'll lay this out. And you just take a cup and you take a piece of bread. You go back and you sit down. And we'll all participate in receiving it together. And I'll say a few words about communion. The way that we do this here is we lower the lights and then from the first rows going all the way back you come up the front and you go back around the side and sit down and hold the cup and the bread until we can all participate in receiving it together so kim will play and the lights will go down and just call out to the lord before you come on up